This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to remind you, peace of mind is tough to come by these days unless you have a Liberty Safe. With a Liberty Safe, you won't worry when you leave the house because you'll know your valuables are protected. And right now, you can get free delivery to your home on any Liberty Safe. Go to LibertySafe.com for factory direct pricing. LibertySafe.com, made in the USA, lifetime warranty, and peace of mind. LibertySafe.com. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. What a really discouraging week. Is that a fair, fair adjective to use? This week in particular, doesn't everything just seem completely upside down? Now, let me tell you this. Last night, I gave a speech at a local conservative group here in San Diego, and I'm actually really encouraged about the future because it's always good to get re-energized with people who are in the same fight. Uh, So I'm in a really good mood, actually. And I, I guess one thing I'd like to start off with is you may feel alone. You may feel like things are totally upside down and nothing makes sense and no one's paying attention and all the rest. But... If you could see everyone listening to the Blaze Radio Network right now, and if you could be around all the people who listen every day and every week, you would feel a lot less alone. You'd feel a lot less discouraged. And I need that every once in a while, and that's why I'm glad I was able to go to that uh, event last night. Um, but it's the same thing here. You may be alone in your car or whatever you're doing right now, but you are with a lot of other people uh, who are in the same fight with you. So please don't feel alone. Things will get better. But not before it gets worse. And it's got a lot more to go. Uh, so we're going to talk coming up uh, in the next three hours about my wife's hometown. And uh, where we got married. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Talk about the crushing of babies. From Planned Parenthood. Talk about the murder of Kate in San Francisco by an illegal immigrant. And also how all of these things are connected. They really are. But first, I want to start here, and I want to open up the phones and get your answer to this question. First, I'll tell you what happened. Now, this happened on 4th of July, and I just found out about it early this week. It's the story of Kevin Sutherland. So it's 4th of July night, D.C. Metro. Subway. It's their subway. Now, I'm just going to throw this fact out here. Nah, I'm not even. Forget that. Jasper, 18 years old, tries to pickpocket Kevin. He's 25 years old. Kevin noticed and said something. And I don't know what happened after that, but eventually, quickly, Jasper took out a pocket knife and stabbed Kevin 40 times and started kicking his head and stomping his head into the ground of the train, floor of the train. Now the train was moving this entire time and the train was full. And everyone on the train, they saw it happen. They moved to the ends of the train. And no one did anything. And this happened for a few minutes. So imagine you're watching this. And really imagine this, because this is going to be my ultimate question. There's a guy on the ground, someone on top of him with a small knife, a pocket knife. 
He doesn't have a machete. He doesn't have an AK-47. Pocket knife. Stabbing him over and over again. And then gets up and starts kicking him in the head. Put yourself in that scenario. What would you do? What would you do if you, if you saw this? Now, obviously, a lot of variables. If you have kids with you, how old you are, how fit you are. A lot of variables. I get it. But generally speaking, wherever you are in your life, what would you do? For instance, one witness, 52 years old, woman. She said, you're not really sure what you need to do. Keep in mind, this guy got stabbed 40 times. That's a long time it takes to do that. You're not really sure what you need to do. This man's holding a bloody knife. I don't think anyone was going to try and stop him. Now, I don't know if I would expect my mom to jump on this 18-year-old with a knife, but there had to be some, at least one healthy, able-bodied male, two or three, who could have stopped an 18-year-old with a pocket knife, right? So I first heard this story and I put myself in this scenario. Now I'm 30 years old, um, fit enough, right? uh, not the strongest person in the world, but I can hold my own. But I also have an amazing wife. We don't have kids yet, but we will soon. Which means I have a life and responsibilities and people that depend on me. And I was asking myself, am I going to risk my life and my wife's welfare and my kid's future to save a stranger on a subway. Now, I'll tell you my initial thought. We're all friends here, right? No judgment. Nothing's going to leave this room. I know I should help him. And when I first thought about it, I'm thinking, gosh, would I? I know I should, but would I? I don't know. So that's why I want to ask this question. Twofold. First, what would you do if you were in that situation? And second, why? Because that's the key. The key is why. Because anyone can say with bravado, be like, of course I would help this person. But why? Because the why will transcend everything. Once you know the why, then that will push you past any hesitation. Right? It'll push you past any doubt you may have. And it'll get rid of any of the confusion. And it will eliminate some of the variables. Once you know why, you should get involved then no matter what, you will. So what do you think? one 93 Now I'll tell you what. Asking yourself, would I risk my life? Would I, would I risk my family's welfare for this stranger? If we don't answer that question... Let me, let me tell you this. If, if, people aren't, if we don't live in a country where at least a large amount of people say yes and have the moral foundation of why they will help that person, if we don't, then we're going to live in a country 
of that subway car. Where someone is under gruesome attack and no one does anything. And I'm just thinking of Kevin who's on the ground getting stabbed 40 times and kicked in the head. I'm thinking of him being there saying, uh, anyone? Hello, any, is there anyone on this train who's going to help me at all? Or at least distract him for a second so I can get up and drive I me? Mean, not anyone? And no one did anything. I don't want to live in that country. I mean, as Gandhi said, you got to be the change you wish to see in the world. I don't want to live in that world. Which means I have to be that guy who's willing to step in, right? Would you? one 888 900 Now, of course, let me uh, throw this out. Every situation is different. I'm not suggesting everyone like, like an idiot, right? And it, you know, if there's 10 people with AK-47s, you're not going to, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be a hero, but think of just this situation. Now, maybe I can throw one more variable in here. Uh, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to save it to the end because it shouldn't make a difference. This variable I'm going to throw. We'll do it in the next segment. But I want to take your phone calls. one 900 3393. You're on a subway car full of people. Two people fighting. It's not even really a fight. One guy's on top of the other, stabs him 40 times, kicks him in the head a bunch of times, kills him right there. No one does anything. What do you do if you're on that train? 1-888-900-3393. Take your call next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Later. Slider Crusaders, D.C. Metro, 4th of July night, full train of people, subway. 18-year-old jumps on top of a 25-year-old, stabs him 40 times with a pocket knife. 40, think about what 40 times, so even like, take your, take your hand, just do it, and like try to stab yourself 40 times. That's a lot, like, even if you go fast, like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I mean, 40 times, that's a lot of stabbings. And got up and kicked him in the head a couple times as well. No one did anything. Train full of people. Put yourself in that scenario. Now, let me, let me make a quick um, word here before we get started. Take your phone calls. one 888 If I, I don't want to make anyone feel bad. Because I know, I know that people are going to be like, gosh, if I'd be in that situation, I'd be shocked. I probably wouldn't do anything. Uh, that's okay. Like my wife would not go jump on this guy, right? I, I wouldn't expect her to. But there have to be, there has to be a certain amount of people in a population that are sheepdog, and who are prepared and willing to do things like that. And if we don't, and if you're going to take a random sample of people like you would on a DC metro, and no one is willing to do anything, that's a problem. I want to go to Gracie, who's in uh, Alabama right now, and see what Gracie would do. Gracie, how are you today? Hey, Gracie, can you hear me? Gracie in Alabama. Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, there you are, Gracie. How are you today? I'm doing fine. 
Good. Thanks for calling. Oh, I love your accent, Gracie. My wife's from Tennessee. I love it. Beautiful. Uh, <laughs> what would you do, Miss Gracie? You're on that metro. You see this guy getting stabbed. What do you do? I would I would do something. It's just in my nature to help anybody. I would be screaming. I would be picking up something, throwing at him. People didn't even do that, Gracie. I have some eyewitness accounts here. People diverted their eyes. They pretended not to watch it. I couldn't I couldn't handle that. I would have to do something. It's screaming or even though I wouldn't go and jump on the person, I would be screaming or picking up something, throwing it at them or something. Throw your purse, whatever. Yeah, do something to distract yeah. him. No one did anything. I, Gracie, I didn't even think about that. Like something to distract him. Anything. No one did anything. Yeah. Amazing. Gracie, go ahead. Now, let me ask you, because here's the follow-up. Why? Why would you do something? Because I want to. Or else what? How how would you feel if you didn't? I I would feel horrible if I didn't do anything, something, a distraction, look around, pick up something, anything I saw Mm -hmm. to throw at them, and I would be screaming. Yeah, Gracie. Or something. Yeah, you're awesome, Gracie. Thank you for calling. Thank you for listening. Um, the reason I asked how you would feel otherwise because there's uh, an eyewitness wrote out a little explanation, and he talked about you know what it was like watching it and all that. And this is what he ends with. He says, "What I wish, or he said, what I don't wish, is that I had somehow tried to attack the assailant. I don't. I don't wish that I tried to attack." Him. I'm a little bit larger than he was, but I would not have won. It's scary because if we had been sitting closer and had seen the attack start, I probably would have tried to help and would have been stabbed. I asked the police if we could have done something differently, and they said we did the right thing. Go get to safety and get help. On top of that, they said to focus on remembering everything you can about the assailant. I am lucky to be alive, but Kevin is not and my heart breaks every time I think about it. What's disturbing about to me to that eyewitness account, I can understand someone being in a dramatic situation like that and freezing or not wanting to get involved or whatever. But afterwards, if you didn't do something, I would think you would be distraught about it. Wouldn't you feel ashamed? Wouldn't you be like, oh my gosh, like, I wish I did something. I wish I knew what to do. I'll give you an example of this. My, uh, wife's, boss, my wife's boss's husband. Okay. He was driving down the street in San Diego, watched someone get hit on their bicycle with a car, by a car. Everyone got out and stood around this person. This person's laying on the ground. I don't know what their state was, but it wasn't good. No one did anything. No one knew what to do. Ambulance came, took him away. We don't know what happened to him, right? But he was so distraught at not knowing what to do and, and not helping in some way that I mean, let's say the person died and and maybe they could have done something to help him keep alive a little longer, whatever. He was so distraught at that and so ashamed that his wife, for everyone in her work, my wife's work, they had a CPR class. Husbands, friends, everyone was invited. It was totally free. Let's take a CPR class so that if you're ever in this situation, you're trained to know what to do. You're prepared. So I would at least imagine someone who watches this is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't know what to do. I feel awful. I'm going to go take a self-defense class. So at least I may be a little more prepared next time this happens. But to have no shame about it, that's the thing that bothers me. So let me tell you, I took, um, 
we took maybe 30 phone calls this week on this topic on my local show. Everyone was pretty much like Gracie. And everyone said, not only would I help this man who was being stabbed, but here are all the reasons why, which means there was depth to your statement, right? The principles that you live by, an honor code that you follow. And when you know why you have this honor code, nothing's going to knock you off track. And I remember I took one phone call from Dave. I'll never forget it. And Dave called in and said, yeah, I would help this person. And I said, why? And he said, I would have no choice. And I thought, I said, I said, Dave, of course you have a choice. Everyone on that train had a choice. They chose to do nothing. So you would have a choice, certainly. And Dave said, no, I would have no choice but to help. And I said, Dave, you're not listening. Of course you would have a choice. And he said, Slater, you're not listening. I would have no choice. And it finally hit me. And you know what? It was freeing. It really was. It was because I was going back and forth. I'm like, oh, I got to protect my wife. Got to protect my family. I, would, I don't want to get stabbed. What am I going to do? But blah, blah, blah. Going back and forth. Like, oh, but I want to do something, but I don't know what to do, to do and what I should do. And blah, blah, blah. Going back and forth. And finally, when Dave said, Slater, you'd have no choice, it was liberating to think, you know what, Slater? You have no choice but to help that person. You have no choice but to help that person. And if I'm talking to myself honestly, it's like, oh man, I don't really know what to do. Okay, fix that. Fix that right now. So when then the situation, God forbid, ever does come, you can be prepared. I remember I talked about it with my wife a couple nights ago for the first time. And I explained the whole situation just like I did. You know what she said? I said, wife, what would you want me to do? She said, you better help that person. <laughs> She's awesome. Can I ask you a favor? Or ask a favor of you? Tonight, around the dinner table, or this weekend, ask your kids. Ask your kids what they would want you to do. Remember, I was, someone else called in and brought up kids. And I said, hey, Charlie, what if, uh, he said, I would go do something. And I said, well, what if your kids were with you? Because my first thought was, well, you got to protect your kids. So you got to stay back, protect your kids. So I said, I said, Charlie, well, what would you do if your kids were with you? As kids are, you know, six and eight. And he said, all the more reason to go do something. (laughs) All the more reason to go help that guy because my kids are watching. Which just flipped it up or over, right? Flipped it upside down. I'm thinking if your kids are there, that's an excuse to not help this person. And he said, no, no, because your kids are there, that's all the more reason to go help this person. So I'm curious what your kids think, what they expect out of us as parents and as adults and what they would do in that situation or what they would want to do, what they think the right thing to do is. And if you can uh, send me a Twitter note, Slater Radio, or an email. My email is slaterradio at gmail.com. It's same as Twitter, but at gmail.com. Put it on Facebook, too. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. What your kids would expect of you in that situation. 
1-888-900-3393. I want to come back with a speech from Teddy Roosevelt on what he expects of kids in a scenario like this. We'll explain next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. We're going to uh, get to what happened in Chattanooga and with Planned Parenthood. We got all that coming up. Uh, I want to wrap up this conversation about the D.C. Metro and talk about some bigger picture stuff here. Uh, So if you're just tuning in, D.C. Metro, 4th of July night, 18-year-old stabs a 25-year-old 40 times with a pocket knife um, on the train. The train's moving, so it's a couple minutes. Uh, No one does anything. No one did anything. Everyone watched it. And at least one witness, an able-bodied male, bigger than the stabber, doesn't even feel bad about it. Doesn't feel bad about doing nothing. So put yourself in that scenario. What would you do? Think about how long it takes to stab someone 40 times. What would you do and why? And I'd love it if you could ask your kids what they, what they would do, what they think the right thing to do is, what they would expect you to do in that scenario. And if you can let me know, that'd be fantastic. Slater Radio is my Twitter, and just at gmail.com is, is my website, is my um, email, slaterradio at gmail.com. I want to talk about uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, putting his politics aside, is the just archetype of American manliness. He was a cattle rancher a police commissioner, a governor, the president, a soldier, a writer, an explorer, a boxer, a wrestler, a reader, a husband. He read the Iliad and the Odyssey twice in Greek. Once, where were the two times he read it? Once as a boy. No, no, once, no, there's a once on, uh, on horseback, right? Once on horseback as he was traveling west in Greek. And then another time uh, when he was in the White House. Okay, so he is just a, a, a man, like in the most traditional classic sense. And he was given the, I mean, like in the sense that he's like classical philosophy and whatnot. He's a man. Um, he was giving a commencement speech at Sidwell School in Washington, D.C. This is where the president's daughters go today. Uh, this is in 1907. I just want to read a paragraph here, very short speech. He said, I want to see you game, boys. Meaning, I want to see you prepared. I want to see you ready. I want to see you involved. He said, I want to see you brave and manly. And I also want to see you gentle and tender. In other words, you should make it your object to be the right kind of boys at home so that your family will feel a genuine regret instead of a sense of relief when you're away. And at the same time, you must be able to hold your own in the outside world. You cannot do that if you have not manliness and courage in you. Now, it does not, it doesn't do any good to have either of those two sets of qualities if you lack the others. I don't care how nice of a little boy you are. If when you're out, you're afraid of other little boys, lest they be rude to you. 
For if that's the case, then you're not going to be a very happy boy, nor grow up to be a very useful man. Right? So if you're nice, dad, you're just super nice, but you're afraid to do anything. Right? You're afraid to, to, to do things that are uncomfortable to you. You're not going to grow up to be a very, a very useful man. For when a boy grows up, I want him to be of such a type that when somebody wrongs him, he will feel a good, healthy desire to show the wrongdoers that he cannot be wronged with impunity. Let's see here. Ah, this is how it relates to the Metro. I like to have a man who is a citizen that when a wrong is done to the community by anyone, and I think someone stabbing another person on the subway is an example of that. When a wrong is done to the community by anyone, when there is an exhibition of corruption or betrayal of trust or violence or brutality, I would like a man who is not shocked and horrified and would like to go home. But I would like to have him feel the determination to put the wrongdoer down. To make the man who does wrong aware that the decent man is not only superior in decency, but is superior in strength. And not only physical strength, but strength of character. The kind of strength that makes a good and forceful citizen. I love this quote right here. I'm going to hang on to this quote, and I'm going to, we're going to do a lot more exploring of this quote moving forward. It should be your pride to be the champion of the weak. It should be your pride to be the champion of the weak. Not like seven days, but opposite of strong. A champion of the weak. And I'll end with this. He said, um, a bit of advice. This is how he ended his speech. He said, a bit of advice that I've always been found of was gathered from the football field. And it applies just as much in life as it does on the football, with the football team. In life, as in your games, remember... Don't flinch. Don't foul. And hit the line hard. That was it. That was the end of his speech. Don't flinch. Don't foul. And hit the line hard. In other words, don't hesitate when you see wrongdoing being done. Don't hesitate. Don't foul. Don't commit any wrongdoing. And hit the line hard. Commit. When you commit to doing the right thing, when your heart, your head... Uh, and your body are in line to do the right thing, hit that hard. Do it, com- complete it, hit it fully. Don't compromise and, and see through it until it's completed. Hit the line hard. I want to tell the story of Rebecca Townsend. A few years ago, this, this is a story of not flinching, not fouling and hitting the line hard. This is what that looks like to me. Rebecca Townsend, a few years ago, it was her sophomore year in English um, high school. And her English teacher gave her an assignment to write a note to her future self. And in that note, she wrote three things on her bucket list. Right? Things she wanted to do before she died. First, go to Spain. Second, kiss in the rain. And third, save a life. Graduated high school, got accepted to Notre Dame. And before she went, her parents took her to Spain the summer before. Check. Perfect. When she came home, she met a cute boy and kissed him in the rain. 
Check. And on the 4th of July, just a couple weeks ago, she was with some friends going to the fireworks. And when they were, when they were crossing the street, Rebecca saw a car speeding towards her friend Benjamin. Rebecca ran in front of the car, pushed Benjamin out of the way. She saved a life. But that act took hers. She accomplished all three things on her bucket list. That third thing just before she died. But she didn't hesitate. Because she already decided what to do in that situation. And that's the key. If you haven't decided... So, Dr. David Jeremiah, pastor, Shadow Mountain Community Church. You've heard him uh, on uh, radio for decades. I was talking to him uh, the other day. I forget what we were talking about. He said... Oh, we talk, he's in San Diego, so we talk on my show every Friday. I forget what we were talking about, but he said, Slater, I've been saying this for years. I say this to um, the young kids. If you decide... Or if you make a decision, if you're trying to make a decision on what to do when it comes to sexual purity in the back of the car when you're with your boyfriend or girlfriend, it's far too late. You have to, all, you have to make that decision now before, you, before, before you're in that position. It's the same thing here. Rebecca decided a couple years prior to that that she wanted to save a life. And the situation presented itself and she didn't hesitate. And if uh, think of the, the DC Metro story, the thing that started all this. If you're thinking, gosh, I don't know what I would do. If you're thinking, like, I know I want to help, but I, don't, I wouldn't know what to do. May I suggest taking a self-defense class? Any, I mean, any, any discipline um, would be good. Any, anything, anything's better than nothing. Uh, I can suggest Krav Maga. Uh, it's Israeli Defense Force self-defense class. Uh, K-R-A-V-M-A-G-A, two words, Krav, K-R-A-V-M-A-G-A, Krav Maga. Um, I think it means contact combat. I think that's what the words mean in Hebrew. Um, and there's, I guarantee you there's a, a class near you. So maybe do that. Do that with the family. It'd be a lot of fun. Especially women. Take a self-defense class. If you're not even comfortable doing that, can I suggest a CPR class? It's about being prepared, right? And you have to make the decision now to be of service in those situations. And if you, again, if, you make this, if you're like, I know what the right thing to do is, but I'm not prepared, we can change that. Very simple. Rebecca's sister at her funeral said, she wants us to be okay. She accomplished what she what she no, she accomplished what she needed to. She made it. Those, those are great words for someone to say about you, isn't it? She accomplished what she needed to. She made it. I want to live in a world full of Rebecca's. 
And we're all capable of doing that. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. Um, I've been thinking a lot this week in light of this story, this DC story about honor. What do you do on the subway when someone's getting stabbed 40 times and no one does anything? And it's... I, I think one reason why no one did anything is because today... It seems that evil goes unpunished. And on the flip side, it seems that good goes unrewarded. So as a result of this lack of clear lines, people don't know what to do. And if you have a moment of of where you freeze, then that's it. It's too late. Right? We used to live in a culture that says this is honorable behavior. This is dishonorable. This is courageous. This is cowardly. There were bold, clear lines. And now it's all very like, ah, oh, you know, teach his own, you know, live and let live, do whatever everything's bad. I mean, whatever. It's all watered down. And there's no more bold, clear lines. And people are lost because of it. Our culture is lost because of it. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about what not to do. And we don't spend enough time celebrating those who have done the right thing. And if you don't do that, then it's just a big process of elimination game, right? It's like, well, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And eventually, you know, after an infinite amount of time, you're going to get to what you should do. But let's cut to the chase. What should I do? Well, I can tell the story of Ismael Jimenez. He was riding home on the school bus outside Sacramento, California last year, 18 years old, when a FedEx truck crashed into the bus. The bus burst into flames. Ishmael kicked out the front window. But he continued to pull as many people out of the bus as he could. He crawled into the bus one more time before it completely exploded. He was one of the five high schoolers who were killed. Park Ji Young, South Korea, she was on a ferry, started to sink. She wasn't a part of the crew. She worked in the cafeteria. And while the whole crew left the boat, Park was the only person to stay behind. 22 years old, she worked in the cafeteria. She helped kids put on life jackets, got as many people on the boat as possible. And when one of the lifeboats went off, someone said, hurry up, get in the boat. And she said, the crew goes off last. She wasn't even technically on the crew. She went down with the boat. Joe Cervanti, 21 years old, University of Alabama. There's a tornado coming through town. He and his girlfriend took cover in the basement. There was so much rain, the foundation started to crumble. And the concrete wall started to fall on his girlfriend. He ran under it, held the wall up until she could get away, and it crushed him. Carissa Bugle, 34 years old, giving birth to her second child. Doctors told her she had an amniotic fluid embolism. It's when the amniotic fluid that surrounds a baby in the uterus enters the mom's bloodstream, and she was left with a choice. She could either get the baby out right now through an emergency C-section, which would save the baby's life, but probably end hers. 
or the doctors could see what they could do and try to save her life, but her baby wouldn't make it. Right then, she chose to have the C-section. She died just a few minutes later. Baby Declan is alive today. Tyler Duhan, eight years old, sleeping at a friend's house in a trailer. Trailer caught fire. He woke everyone else up in the trailer. Everyone got up, got out, but there was someone else in the trailer who was handicapped in a wheelchair. So he ran inside to get him. And neither of them made it out. These are stories of people giving up their lives to save someone else. And those stories just go by the wayside, right? How can we complain? Here, that's serious. How can we complain about people not acting honorably if we don't celebrate the people who do? Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Come back with what happened in Chattanooga the other day. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I hope you're having a great Saturday. It's actually pouring rain here in San Diego. No one, no one knows what to do when that happens. Everyone just sort of freaks out and stays home. Like it's raining. Um, I want to talk about the Planned Parenthood story from the week? It, it was. It's been a crazy week. A really as I said at the top of the show, a really uh, discouraging week in a lot of ways. The uh, first of Planned Parenthood, if you haven't yet, uh, I recommend reading the Matt Walsh article that's on The Blaze. Really great, as most of his pieces are. The And you know the whole background, so we don't have to go over everything, but a couple points. This isn't some rogue abortion employee or Planned Parenthood employee in Boise. Or is that right? This is the senior director of medical services who said, quote, we've been very good at getting heart, lung, liver because we know, so I'm not going to crush that part. I'm basically going to crush below. I'm going to crush above and I'm going to see if I can get it all intact. So admitting that abortion involves crushing parts of babies and keeping parts intact doesn't that admit that it's not just a clump of cells right isn't that it that's that's the whole pitch that's what we're told abortion is it's not a big deal because it's just a clump of cells well if it is just a clump of cells how are there any how are there any parts to sell how is there a liver how are there lungs how is there a heart how are there a brain if it's just a clump of cells. It's not a clump of cells. The truth is an aborted baby is as much of a clump of cells as you and I are a clump of cells. And it has a soul as much as you and I have a soul. I got to tell you, and I know this is going to be a tough segment to listen to, but 
It's the truth. I've I never knew. I never cared to know, to be honest, what an abortion entailed. Until a couple of weeks ago, on my local show, we had an abortion doctor on the air who has performed thousands of abortions in his life before he decided to stop. And I'll, let me just give you this short 30 second of why he decided to stop it. This doesn't do, do it justice at all. Uh, but he would, in the beginning, the beginning morning of the day, first part of his day, he would meet with women who were having pregnancy complications and do everything he could to try and save the baby. And then he would walk across the hall and perform an abortion and kill a baby. And, and after a while, that is just like, whoa, what's going on here? And then he, he, uh, he and his wife couldn't have a baby, so they adopted. And then a couple years later, um, their daughter was, I think, hit by a car. So, so just the preciousness of life really hit him. And, and now he's an outspoken um, pro-life advocate. Uh, but he described in great medical detail what an abortion is. And they literally dismember the baby in the womb piece by piece. And then outside of the womb, they put the baby back together again to make sure that they've removed all the parts. I had no idea. So Planned Parenthood for a long time has been pushing this image that, that a baby is just a clump of cells, a fetus is a clump of cells. And then here we have in this video, they're talking about offering intact hearts and lower extremities. You get the idea. <clears throat> now here's the noteworthy part, I suppose. And I'm glad, when did this story come out? Like Wednesday? Remember when it first came out? Maybe Tuesday. Remember when it first came out? I'm thinking, you know what? This is going to be uh, a 12-hour news story. That's all anything ever is these days, right? It's good enough to fill an afternoon of a, of a broadcast. Then we got to move on to the next thing. And I'm thinking, what is just this is like an hour after the story came out. I'm thinking, what a shame that this is only going to be in the news for today. I'm glad it's lasted at least a little bit longer to get more people to see what Planned Parenthood really is. The problem is no one on the left is going to do anything about this. They're not even going to give it a passing glance. Because the bottom line is abortion is big business. And Planned Parenthood has the financial footprint of uh, that's the same size as the NCAA. They make big money with this. Even Remember, you know Roe v. Wade? It's the Supreme Court case about abortion, made abortion legal. Jane Roe, even she says that she was used by pro-abortion advocates just to make abortion legal. Actually, I want to tell her story coming up a little later. She said that she was a patsy in the whole thing. She was used and abused and taken advantage of. And even Jane Roe, like Roe in Roe v. Wade... She has three kids. She's never had an abortion. <laughs> yeah, we talked earlier about the man who was stabbed 40 times on the subway in D.C. 40 times. And no one did anything. And how they can be and how we can live in that country. That's, I, I don't want to live in that country. Well, one million babies are aborted by Planned Parenthood every three years. And people look away. 
And unfortunately, the human scraps that are left on the operating table are too valuable to go to waste for Planned Parenthood. In other words, exploitation of women for profit. It's a feminist dream. I will never understand, as long as I live, how being pro-choice, pro-abortion, is the woman's right thing to do. You know what I mean? Like, if you're pro-women, if you're a you know feminist pro-women, then you have to be pro-choice <laughs> or like, pro-abortion. I don't understand how those two things have ever lined up. How can that possibly be the pro-women thing to do? As opposed to crisis pregnancy centers, which are pro-life centers, which meet young girls and women who are in this crisis pregnancy, work alongside them through it in love, help them have the baby, and then help them raise the baby. Right? So like... Rolling up your sleeves, getting dirty, getting inside of someone's life, helping them through this incredibly difficult process so that they're not alone, doing it all with love, and then having a new human life survive and exist and grow old. Like that, that's the pro women, woman thing to do, isn't it? Wouldn't it be? You'd think, right? Not to mention the fact that half of the babies more are murdered, you know, killed with abortion, would grow up to be women. Yet the pro-women's right thing to do is to allow this abortion to continue. I'll never understand that. If you were disturbed, distraught, sickened by the Planned Parenthood video... Um, if you feel called to do so, may I make a suggestion? Uh, I mentioned these crisis pregnancy centers. There's one in a town near you. Again, these are the pro-life alternatives to Planned Parenthood. If you hate Planned Parenthood, may I suggest giving some time, or may I suggest calling up your local crisis pregnancy center and seeing how the, how you can be used? Uh, maybe it's money. Most likely, it's just time, especially if you're a guy. I was talking to one of the uh, leaders of our local, one of our local crisis pregnancy centers, and she said it's so important that men volunteer here, handing out diapers and stuff to, to moms, because these are a lot of these women have never trusted a male before, and they've been wronged by men before. So to have men there helping them through this process. And, and throughout the process, it's extremely encouraging. So if you feel called to do that, they're called crisis pregnancy centers. I didn't even know they existed until a couple months ago, uh, but they're wonderful groups. It's the alternative. It's the alternative to Planned Parenthood because so many people, we've mentioned this, we've done this analogy a million times. If you're grabbing onto a rope hanging over a cliff, right? You got a rope over a cliff. You're hanging onto this rope for dear life. Someone can yell and scream that that rope is going to break all day long. Right, you're hanging on, and someone's saying, "Listen, you got to let go of that rope because it's gonna it's gonna snap, or let go of the rope because it's the wrong rope to hang on to." And you're hanging on to that rope. You're thinking, "Well, what do you want me to do? If I let go, I'm gonna fall off the cliff. I'm gonna fall down. I'm gonna die. What do you want me to do? I gotta hang on to this rope. It's the only rope to hang on to. No one's gonna let go of it until you throw down another rope." 
So we can complain about Planned Parenthood all day long and how evil they are. But unless we throw down another rope, another alternative for these young girls and women, they're going to go to Planned Parenthood every time. So it's got to be a two-pronged approach, if you will. We have to eliminate Planned Parenthood, but also negate the need for it. And crisis pregnancy centers are the way to do that. You know, last hour we were talking about courage. And courage, courage is the high, it's the mother of all virtues. Aristotle said it's the mother of all virtues. So it's the, I, I believe it's the highest of all the virtues. Not anymore, though. There's another virtue that has taken the number one ranking from courage. I want to talk about that virtue, unfortunately. That virtue. Coming up next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater, the two things we've talked about today, the Planned Parenthood story and the uh, D.C. Metro story, they're the same thing. They're the exact same story. By the way, I never mentioned earlier the height and weight of the guy who stabbed a 25-year-old 40 times and no one did anything. The murderer? No one did anything. The murderer, 18 years old, 5'5", 125 pounds. No offense to men who are similarly sized, but, you know, I think my wife's bigger than, I mean, like, it's about about the same size as my wife. Like, and he's got a pocket knife and everyone runs scared. There's no courage there. And there's different types of courage. You have physical courage, but there's also intellectual courage and moral courage to do the right thing when it's hard. And I think we're lacking in those. But more than that, we've replaced courage. So Aristotle said that courage is the mother of the virtues because it makes all the other virtues possible. C.S. Lewis said a similar thing. He said courage is not just one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. So... Uh, let's think of a virtue forgiveness forgiveness is hard someone wrongs you you don't want to forgive them but when you need to forgive someone right when the virtue of forgiveness reaches its testing point it requires courage personal responsibility is a virtue when you have to admit that you did something wrong and you need to take responsibility the virtue of responsibility when that reaches its testing point it takes courage so without courage none of the other virtues are possible And courage today is seen as either something that's unnecessary, something that's exotic, something that's unusual, or something that you do on Twitter with a couple tweets and retweets. And honestly, that's the story with today's social justice warriors, right? The people who go on Twitter to uh, fight against the injustice of the Confederate flag, right? We're going to fight against the injustice of the Confederate flag just so happens to be 150 years after it took actual courage 
from people to end the institution of slavery in America. Right, People who feign outrage at things because society says they should, but don't actually ever do anything. And they don't want to do anything because it's inconvenient to their lives. So I believe that courage as the highest virtue has been replaced with convenience as the highest virtue. We talked about this a couple months ago, um, about why, why the advancements, how do I even word this? How, why the advancement of gay rights has skyrocketed the last couple of years? How, like why? What we know it's happened. We know more people are uh, for gay marriage or whatever than ever before, or even civil unions, or even just the act itself. We know that, but why? What? Why? Why? I know exactly why. It's because millennials were raised to praise the figures who fought oppression during the civil rights movement. Rightfully so. But millennials now want their own Selma. And they found it with gay marriage. But here's the deal. Gay marriage, uh, gay people, marginalized people that no one ever defended. But the good news is embracing this cause requires zero effort whatsoever. Nothing. It doesn't require any moral consistency. It doesn't require any financial sacrifice. It doesn't require any physical action. Right? Moral consistency. You can stand for this thing and still sleep with as many people as you want and be as immoral as you can and not lose an ounce of credibility. Financial uh, sacrifice. You don't need to donate a cent to this cause because gay people are all gainfully employed. And the max of our physical effort that is needed for this cause by this generation, is to change your Facebook profile picture. Maybe go to a gay pride parade or two. Right? So you, so you go to a gay pride parade and you are instantly more compassionate, more accepting, and more saintly than any human being who has ever lived. Take that, MLK! Gay rights activism for the millennial generation has required nothing from us. Didn't cost a cent, but look at all the self-righteousness that was gained. We have placed convenience as the highest of the virtues, and the gay marriage movement was convenient. Now, the pro-life movement, ooh. Mm. that's controversial. Uh, so people may not like me. What am I going to do? Change my Facebook profile to a fetus? Like I've had, That's not cool. So pro-life movement, uh, I don't know. Millions of babies being killed. I don't, I don't want to. And forget about the babies. Millions of, of moms who aren't making this decision through love like they could be. They're met with and said, convenient. So anyway, pro-life movement, I don't want to deal with that. How about actual modern day slavery around the world and still in America with human trafficking? You going to do it now? That takes a lot of work. We're not going to pick up that cause. Too much work. How about helping the poor? Mm, that cost me money. I'm just going to vote for higher taxes. We'll let the government fix that problem. So the highest virtue today is convenience. I mean, do you see how clear that is? It is to me. So to bring it back to the Planned Parenthood video, I mean, the, the Planned Parenthood medical director over a nice salad and glass of wine discussing selling aborted babies' organs and body parts 
In today's world, she's the courageous one. Look how she's helping women and advancing science. (laughs) Please, we need people with real courage to fight the current of the wide path and encourage people to take that narrow one, even though it may be difficult. And of course they're going to be, because it's only worth doing if it's difficult. So yeah, the good the good news about fighting for these other things that are that are you know pro life movement, slavery around the world, human trafficking in America, poverty. The good thing about fighting for those causes is they are inconvenient, they are difficult. That's the best part about fighting for them. No one else will. If you are uh, disgusted by that Planned Parenthood video, again, I encourage you to contact your local crisis pregnancy center, find out how you can volunteer and help because real courage requires fighting the trend and it's not about you it's not about you fighting the trend let's help young girls and women fight the trend save some lives in the process crisis pregnancy centers Mike Slater show blaze radio network spread the word Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Banner, Slater Radio on uh, the Tweet Machine. Search for Mike Slater on uh, Facebook. Um, we've got a theme today. Theme is courage. Physical courage. Spiritual courage. Moral courage. We need them all. It all started with this DC Metro stabbing on 4th of July. If you're just tuning in, here's the short of it. 18-year-old stabbed a 25-year-old 40 times on the subway train. No one did anything. Car full of people. No one did anything. It takes a long time to stab someone 40 times. Here's my question. Everyone in the, So there's a lot of reasons why no one did anything. Each person has their own excuse, right? Some good. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm not, you know, not saying everyone should do something, but someone... Mm, Someone on the train could have done something. <laughs> there would be at least one sheepdog in the group. But almost everyone, including a guy who said he was bigger than the guy, the, the stabber. The stabber is only 5'5", 125. Like a runt of a guy. Why did, he said, I'm, I'm glad I didn't get involved because I would have been stabbed. And everyone, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, what's worse than uh, one person being stabbed is two people being stabbed. Why did everyone on the train assume they'd fail? Right, He had a pocket knife. He didn't have an AK-47. And he was completely outnumbered. Why did everyone assume that they would fail? Mike Barnacle. Liberal guy, right? He says the reality is that nobody knows how they would react in a similar situation. We'd like to think we'd behave honorably with courage and care. But we simply cannot know until a moment like that occurs. 
Why not? What are you talking about? Why, why can't you know? <laughs> why can't you know how you would react? You should know exactly how you should react. And if you don't right now, and that's why I, I really thought it was important to bring it up at the top of the show. If you don't know how you would act, let's figure it out right now. Let's get an answer to that. Because this is no good. This Mike Barnacle, well, you know, we just can't know until a moment occurs. If you wait until the moment occurs, it's too late. So why, why is that even a good excuse? Like, why is that the intellectual excuse? Well, you know, you just, you never know how you're going to yet. Why not? If I, wanna, if I can quote from uh, the great Robert Trusinski, he said, it's as if it's a totally exotic notion that anyone would ever be called to show physical courage at some point in their lives. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the whole like, yeah, you know, you just, you never know how you would. Why not? And as Trusinski said, he said, courage is now viewed as exotic and unusual and unprovable and unknowable rather than a normal and expected part of being a man. Someone on Slate wrote a story of how she was accosted on a train. I don't know how she was. 40 years old. Right? She was accosted on a train. I think she was even younger. She may have been like 30. So she was accosted on a train, I think in D.C. as well. 30 other passengers, she said, just looked away, pretended they didn't see it. She's screaming for help and no one does anything. And here's the craziest part. She concludes her article. She says, putting myself in other passengers' shoes, I don't know if I would have helped me either. What? I, <laughs> I don't know if I would have helped me. Now, here's why this is important. Because at the same time, actual courage is becoming a relic. Fake courage has never been stronger. Fake courage like talking about how much you oppose the evils of slavery and the evil Confederate flag 150 years after it took any courage to actually oppose those things. That's fake courage. I'll give you another example. Eli Roth. He is the director of the Hostel uh, uh, horror movies. You ever seen the Hostel movies? I've never seen them, but... If you're a horror movie fan, maybe they're like Saw, which I've seen all of those. Uh, so he's, he's a horror movie director, young guy, and he's got a new movie coming out called The Green Inferno. And I think he explains the plot a little bit here in this clip. This is a clip from uh, Comic-Con. Comic-Con is the big convention here in San Diego. I think it was last weekend. And he's talking about modern day activism uh, from social justice warriors, the SJWs. Here's here he is talking about it. clip one. I wanted to write a movie. Um that you know it was about modern activism where i see a lot of people want to care and they want to help but in general i feel like people don't really want to inconvenience their own lives and i saw a lot of people just reacting to things on social media you see the social justice warriors like this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong and they're just tweeting and retweeting they're not actually doing anything or you see people that get involved in a cause that they don't really know a lot about and they go crazy about it so i wanted to make a movie about kids like that. Um, I think there's a lot of great things, obviously, about activism. People commit their lives to it, but I wanted to make a story about kids that don't really know what they're getting into, get in way over their heads. It actually works, and then on the way home, the iron is their plane crashes, and the very people they saved uh, think that they're invaders and just dart them and eat them and 
make them the food supply of the village. So Green Inferno is your reaction to the SJWs of Twitter. Yeah, my Green Inferno, I actually wrote it, and when I finished the draft, Coney 2012 happened. I was like, this is it. Like, everyone is going, what's wrong with you? They're drinking with their mugs, going like, you, you, don't you care about child soldiers and kids being raped? Like, how can you not tweet this video? This Everyone got so self-righteous and tried, like, publicly shaming, and it was something that they hadn't heard of 24 hours ago. So I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, I think there are ways to get involved and ways to be helpful, but the SJW culture has gotten so out of control that you feel like everyone, are they doing it because they believe in it or they just want to look like good people? You know, are people retweeting things because they think it's important or because they want everybody to think that they're a caring person? So, uh, and I'm not, you know, making a judgment about these people either way. I'm just making a comment on it. So take it to the extreme, just to see um, what's the best choice here. Take it to the extreme when everything is just about tweeting your outrage at something. And not even because you think it's an outrage, but because society wants you to think it's an outrage. And then never actually doing anything. What does that world look like? <laughs> I, didn't, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know what that world It's just, it's. So, so if you're outraged, no, see, because you're not even really outraged. So, so you you tweet something because other people think you should be outraged, but no one ever does anything. Like that's that's where we're headed, right? I mean, just we'll compare it to uh, slavery, right? The people on that subway car—that's that's pretty much what they did. Right? They're like, oh, that's outrageous. Or I think it's outrageous. I don't know. Should I do anything? No. Like, that's pretty much what that was. That's what that world looks like. The people on that subway car, by their own admission, they would have been the people adverting their eyes when they saw a master beating a slave. What else would they do, right? They're not the ones to have the moral or physical courage to do anything. You know what? Coming up a little later, I want to talk about Ida B. Wells. Google had a Google Doodle, uh, I think on Wednesday. Uh, Ida B. Wells' birthday. I.D.B. Wells was Rosa Parks 70 years before Rosa Parks. I.D.B. Wells saw the evils of lynching and actually did something about it. She didn't just tweet about it and do nothing else. She actually did something about it. She's an amazing woman. I want to talk about her a little bit later. So she didn't avert her eyes. She had courage. What does our country look like when we pretend to care about things? Uh, not good. But here's the good news. When courage, when anything, but when courage is in short supply, that's all the more opportunity for us to show it. People may not have it, but our country needs it. one 93 I want to tell a story coming up next. We've all heard Roe v. Wade. But how much do you know about Roe? I knew nothing. Roe v. Wade was the case that made a Supreme Court case that made abortion legal. Roe was the person who was pregnant and wanted the abortion. The story and for everyone else ends there. But I asked, who's Roe? What's her deal? What's her story? This is a great case of why it's not important to be courageous for yourself. 
it's important for you to be courageous for someone else. Remember we read the Teddy Roosevelt speech earlier when he said, uh, your pride, you sh- your pride should be to champion the weak. Your pride should be in championing the weak. The lawyers for Roe did not do that. They took advantage of the week. Big difference. We'll tell her story coming up next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Everyone's heard of that. Of course, that's the Supreme Court case. It said abortion is legal, but how much do you know about Roe? Jane Roe. First of all, that's not her real name. Her real name is Norma McCorvey. The Supreme Court case was in 1973, so here's the short of her story. She was 21 years old, married as a teenager, grew up poor and, her own words, unloved by her mother. Dropped out of school in the ninth grade and abused drugs and alcohol. Worked as a carnival worker and a house cleaner. She became pregnant with her third child. Now, she gave the other two uh, over for adoption, but she didn't want to say goodbye to her third child. So, she decided to have an illegal abortion. The problem is the clinic in Dallas, where she lived, had just been raided and shut down. She didn't know where to go. So she made up a story. She said she was raped. And she she told this to her two lawyers, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey. Now, these two women just graduated law school, and their number one mission was to challenge the law in Texas that said abortion is illegal. They were on a mission. So here's what Norma says. Norma said, plain and simple, quote, plain and simple, I was used. I was a nobody to them. They only needed a pregnant woman to use for their cause. That's it. They cared not about me, but only about legalizing abortion. Even after the case, I was never respected. Probably because I was not an Ivy League educated liberal feminist like they were. She first met these two lawyers in a a pizza parlor. She said, when I told her, one of the lawyers, how desperately I needed an abortion, she could have told me where to go for it. Apparently, this lawyer also had an abortion. So she could have told me where to go for it, but she wouldn't because she needed me to be pregnant for the case. I set Sarah up on a pedestal like a rose petal. But when it came to my turn, well, Sarah saw these cuts on my wrists, my swollen eyes from crying, and the miserable person sitting across from her. And she knew she had a patsy. She knew I wouldn't go outside of the realm of her and Linda. I was too scared. It was one of the most hideous times of my life. So again, just a quick time out. You think of the people who want to meet Norma, where she is in her pain, in her distress, in her anxiety, in this crisis pregnancy, and work with her through it in love. Or the people who want to take advantage of her, like these two lawyers did. 
Now, Norma lied about being raped, but that was an important part of the case. And that's why you hear people say, well, I'm against abortion, but or, you know, you'll say I'm against abortion. They'll be like, well, what about rape or incest? Like, that's where that comes from. The entire case was built around a lie. She had to keep lying, and that brought her into a deeper depression, and she continued to cut her wrists and make some suicide attempts. Long story short, she was used. And still today, Roe in Roe v. Wade, Norma McCorvey, has never had an abortion. Isn't that wild? The poster child for abortion in America. Well, you don't see you talk hear about her a lot anymore because now she's a Christian and she travels the country speaking out against abortion. So you don't, you've not, probably never even seen her before because she's used and abused. She's done now. But the poster child for abortion in America, the namesake of the case that makes abortion legal, has never had an abortion herself. Her ministry is now called Roe No More. So, as it relates to the Planned Parenthood story uh, of the week, not only body parts being sold for profit, but abortion procedures changing so that they can get the most organs. And with systematic efficiency, figuring out what body parts they need to sell on a given day, knowing that abortion is big business and that Planned Parenthood has the financial footprint as big as the NC2A, this is the exploitation of women for profit. And Roe herself, Norma McCorvey, was the most exploited. And millions more every year are told to get an abortion. When life is always the answer. one 933 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Coming up next, got to talk about my wife's hometown, where we got married, the absolutely beautiful city of Chattanooga, Tennessee. I mean, beautiful with the mountains and beautiful with the people. Charleston, you showed us how to react to tragedy a couple weeks back. Let's see how Chattanooga does. We'll chat about it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. I got a letter here written by a Marine wife. Dear Mr. Obama, I have little hope that you'll ever read this, but I got to get this off my chest. Since 1993, our military personnel, many of whom many of whom have extensive weapons training including sidearms have not been allowed to carry weapons openly or concealed on military properties yet on your watch the following incidents have occurred 2009 fort hood 13 killed 29 wounded many permanently disabled 2009 arkansas recruiting station one killed a second wounded 2010 pentagon shooting two wounded 2013, Washington Navy Yard shooting, 13 killed, 3 injured. 2014, Norfolk Naval Base, 1 killed. 
2014. Fort Hood again. Three killed, 14 injured. And 2015, Chattanooga. At the time she wrote this, four Marines. And now we know another sailor. Killed. These incidents, which have resulted in the deaths of 36 innocent people and serious injuries to 50 others, might all have been minimized or even prevented by trained armed military members. Why is it that these men and women who carry firearms on our behalf, whom we entrust with the security and well-being of our nation, aren't allowed to bear arms on military bases in order to defend themselves and others? Signed, Military wife. By the way, these are just the incidents of uh, that result in death and injury that we know of. We don't know about the failed attempts. Bottom line, and I, and I, you know, when this first broke, this story happened on Thursday, and you know, my local show, we talked a lot about this point. I think we get it by now. For the love of Pete, let our military members have weapons so that they can protect themselves. They are targets. That's the bottom line right now. Maybe, and that's, that's the key, actually. They are targets. Our service members are targets. And any target, you defend it. The base itself is a target. I live in San Diego. There's a ton of military bases. Actually, I, dr- I drive by Miramar, uh, one of our air bases, uh, every day, twice a day. And there's always planes flying overhead, F-16s, Ospreys, all the rest. It's awesome. I love it. You can't just walk on the base. Okay, The base is a target, so they put a wall around it. Camp Pendleton, 32nd Street, all these military bases in San Diego, you can't just walk on them. All service members are a target. Allow them to put a wall of protection around themselves so that they're not sitting ducks. It's that simple. But the president will never do that, and this is the key, because he doesn't want to acknowledge that there is a threat against our service members, because that would mean admitting that there is a war being fought. That's that's why <laughs> that's why that policy will not change. Let me let me um, let me tell the story because this actually has. Uh, can you hear that chair? This is the loudest chair in the whole. I think get some WD forty for the WD forty plant is actually right by where I used to live in San Diego too. I just get a bottle of the thing for the love of peace. Sorry about that. Um, this is an important point for other uh, issues as well. But Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution says that Congress has the power to declare war. So usually this comes up when we're talking about, um, you know, just the president deciding to lob missiles somewhere or something like that without the Congress having anything to do with it. It's not the executive branch that declares war. It's it's Congress. But I want to talk about another word, um, the word declare. It doesn't say that Congress has the ability to create war or to initiate war, only to declare it. Declare, the etymology is to make clear, to explain. So Congress has the power to declare war. This is why in every formal declaration of war in American history, they all have the same format. 
and they all talk about how a state of war already exists, right? Because remember, the, con- the country, the Congress, therefore the country, is not allowed to initiate war. So what it says, the Congress can't initiate a war. Not allowed. They can declare that a war already exists. So we'll go back uh, a long time. James Polk, U.S.-Mexican War. He wrote, I invoke the prompt action of Congress to recognize the existence of the war. Meaning the war is already taking place. Roosevelt, 1941, said, I ask that the Congress declare that a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Every formal declaration of war has that framework, right? The state of war already exists. Now it's just up to the Congress to make it clear. So, to bring it to today, a state of war already exists. And it's up to someone to declare it and make it clear and explain it. And the left has no interest in doing that. And that's why they won't let our service members carry weapons. Because then they would be forced to admit that a state of war exists. And not only does a state of war exist, but that the war is being fought here on American soil. That the war is fought in my wife's hometown in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Have you seen the latest ISIS video? They uh, took over an ancient Roman amphitheater in Syria. Beautiful ruins there. And uh, they have 25 Syrian soldiers on their knees all lined up. And they have an ISIS member behind each one of them and they shoot them all in the head. Then a young boy who's like seven or eight years old cuts off the head of another man who's laying on the ground. So I, I say that only because there are some people who know that a state of war exists. And I literally have no idea what it will take for us to recognize it. I, I don't know. I don't use the word literally a lot. I, I, meant, I meant the word literally, not figuratively. I literally do not know what it's going to take for us to recognize. I have no idea. What could it possibly be? For the love of Pete, someone just shot four Marine, five, four Marines and a sailor dead two days ago in Chattanooga. And I, I, I'm sensing a, a nationwide collective shoulder shrug. Right? Like, how dramatic does it need to be? We are so numb. We're so preoccupied. We're so desensitized. I don't know what we need to, what it's going to take for people to care. And listen, we've been desensitized for everything. Everything. Uh, movies. They always got to be bigger and louder, right? I imagine someone from Charlie, like take Charlie Chaplin, take Charlie Chaplin, put him in front of, uh, I don't know, what's a, like Fast and Furious 7. (laughs) See what Charlie Chaplin thinks about that, right? Movies got to be bigger and louder. We're desensitized with uh, roller coasters. There's a uh, roller coaster that used to be, uh, or it still is, where where I used to live in Mission Beach. Uh, there was a roller coaster right down the street. I'll never live so close to a roller coaster in my whole life. And my wife and I, we go on it every Thanksgiving. That's our Thanksgiving tradition. It's called the Big Dipper. It's a wooden roller coaster. It was built in 1920. You go on that thing now, 
kids are napping in the middle of like it's it's like it's nothing. And in 1920, that was the craziest thing around. We've been desensitized with technology. Like, of course, in two months, there's going to be a better iPhone. And in two years, there's going to be self-driving cars. And I'm not even happy that that's happening. I'm annoyed it's taken so long. Self-driving cars. Like, what? Um, the uh, Just last weekend, I was in uh, Long Island. And we got off LaGuardia. And drove through Queens. And we saw the uh, where the World's Fair was in 1964. You know, the towers there um, with the uh, where Men in Black, right? That was the end of the scene. With the, there was the spaceship or whatever. And in the 1964, the World's Fair, the uh, that's where they debuted the uh, It's a Small World ride. That's now at Disneyland. So in 1964, It's a Small World was the coolest thing ever. Today, It's a Small World, like... If there's three people in line, it's not worth the wait to go see that. You, you walk by, it's a small world. You're like, ah, should we? I don't know. We can get off our feet for a while, but in 1964, I like, blew people away. Oh, my God. We're desensitized to engineering miracles. A couple of days ago, we we had a satellite or whatever take close-up pictures of Pluto, like swung around Pluto to take up... There's a rover on Mars right now. There's companies working to mine asteroids. No one cares. No one cares. I just saw a picture just two days ago of a tribe in Africa, kids in Africa, holding an iPad. Ah, they're amazed. Absolutely amazed. It's like voodoo magic in front of them. We've been desensitized to all of these things. And everyone, we all admit that. There's no debate there. We've been desensitized to everything. So why would we not also be desensitized to violence and terrorism? To the point where someone kills four Marines and a sailor in Tennessee, and it's a news story for a couple hours. What's it going to take? I, I don't know. The only thing I can think of is it's going to take affecting everyone. It'll be like a financial crisis where you can't go to the bank anymore. Like no one can go to the bank. It's going to take something like that. Maybe that goes back to the DC Metro story too, right? No one got involved because it was just that guy getting stabbed. And here, no one, no one really, ah, you know, what are we going to do? Because it's just, you know, like those people in Tennessee who got murdered doesn't affect me like can we be that selfish i i don't i don't think i don't i pray not (laughs) but i think being desensitized to all this is uh is a major part of why again i'm feeling a collective shoulder shrug from our country and that's just really pathetic 1-888-933-93 not you not you don't get me wrong which is why we got to get people to not even wake up we got to get people to be sensitive to things again. I want to talk about that next. We got to take a break. I want to come back and break that down a little more next. 1-800-1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater 
on the Blaze Radio Network. Sorry for saying talking about Chattanooga, what happened there uh, the other day. But really just big picture, I want to I actually talk about the people who were killed uh, in the next segment. The Marines are now a sailor. Um, but I want to talk about how we're desensitized. I don't know what it's going to take. I don't. I don't know if like if this isn't it. What 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 is it going to take? And I'll tell you, I'm desensitized too. Here's the first time I knew I was desensitized to to violence and stuff like this. It was the Iraq War. 2003. What was the? Remember, do you remember the beginning of the Iraq War? George Bush. What were the words that he, Cheney, Rumsfeld, all the rest? The, how, what is going to define the attack on Iraq? Remember the words they used? Shock and awe. Shock and awe. And I'm thinking like pff, massive explosions, hundreds of bombs dropped from planes, unlike anything we've ever seen in the movies or in real life. And I remember watching Fox News, Shepard Smith, 2003, watching the camera that was stationed on the top of a building, uh, the nighttime, the, the infrared camera, right? Looking at the nighttime skyline of Baghdad. And I'm like, oh, here it is, shock and awe. And like, you know, Fox News alert, the bombing campaign starts, all the rest. So I'm watching, I'm glued to the TV. And there'd be a little, a little explosion over there. And then and a tiny one over there. And then a few minutes go by and you see a little light over in the distance there. And you're like, is that, is that one? And I remember, I remember watching and thinking, well, what the heck is this? I'm thinking shock and awe. Like what? Meanwhile, in real life, things are getting blown up. And buildings are destroyed. And people are dying. And I'm desensitized because I'm expecting something out of a Vin Diesel movie or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm expecting Michael Bay to be in charge of this shock and awe. And, like, no, this is real life. And I was totally desensitized to it. Planned Parenthood story. If that story, I'm being totally serious here. And let's be honest. Be totally honest with yourself. And it's okay. If your answer is no, I get it. I mean, I just admitted how desensitized I was to people dying uh, heck, even the uh, the ISIS videos. I guarantee people watch the ISIS videos and don't even blink. The Planned Parenthood story. If that story didn't make you cry or turn your stomach in knots, please do me a favor. Google 17-week baby. Take a look at what a 17-week baby looks like in the mother's womb. Now, uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, cartoons, right? You're going to see a lot of drawings of what, diagrams of what a 17... No, no, no. Keep scrolling. Find what an actual 17-week baby looks like. A real baby. And I say 17 weeks because the Planned Parenthood doctor talked about uh, aborting a 17-weeker. That's what she called it, a 17-weeker. So go and look at what a 17-weeker looks like in real life. Again, not a drawing of it, what an actual 17-weeker looks like. Now, only do that if you didn't cry or your stomach didn't turn in knots at the original video. And I do this just to just to unsensitize a little bit. Like, whoa, that that's what that really is. So to bring it back to what happened in Chattanooga, the president initially called it 
a, and I don't know if he's called anything since in the last two days. He called it a heartbreaking circumstance. That was his initial reaction to four Marines. Now five, but at the time, four Marines being murdered by, you know, Mohammed, Abdullah, whatever, for a heartbreaking circumstance. And I remember thinking, circumstance? A circumstance is just like happenstance. It's just like, ah, you know, things, way go. Like things just happen to come together at that time. Doug Powers, he called heartbreaking circumstance. It sounds like the title of a Lifetime movie. The heartbreaking circumstance. Eight o'clock on Lifetime. Not the most accurate way to describe the murder of four Marines and now a sailor. Systematic assassination of our troops is probably a little more accurate. Desensitized. And I think people's reaction to this is the same thing as people's reaction on that DC Metro when the man was stabbed 40 times. All these stories are connected that we've talked about today. Because if one person on that Metro said, we got to take this guy down, guys, come on, let's go. Then others would have joined in, but no one did anything. Same with our country. I think people are ready to rally behind a leader if that leader can articulate a righteous and proper way to protect the American people. People are ready, but the leadership's looking the other way, just like people did on that D.C. metro. So the good people in the country, just like the good people on the metro, don't do anything and then are frustrated and feel ashamed at their inaction. That's how I feel right now. I'll be totally honest. I feel frustrated and ashamed. Frustrated that it seems people don't care and ashamed that I can't do more to stop the evil that's amongst us. Frustrated and ashamed, not a good pair of emotions. The only thing I can know to do is to do what it takes to protect my family. Take a self-defense class. uh, Take a gun class at your local range. Be prepared food, all that stuff, right? If you can do protective things to protect your family, I'm hoping I feel a little less frustrated, a little less ashamed. I'll end on a note from Mark Levin. He said, our government doesn't trust our Marines with guns, but trusts Iran with nukes. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being here today. Uh, it's weird. I feel like we've talked about a lot, but we've only really talked about one thing throughout all the lots of things that we've talked about. Um, I want to do a final thought on, on Chattanooga. You'd almost think it's been a while since an American died in, in the wars we've been fighting. Chrissy Davis died from a missile attack on June 8th in Afghanistan. That was the last death. Um, But you don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan to find victims of the war that's being fought against us. We now know the four Marines who were killed in Chattanooga and just released uh, the identity of the sailor. So that's five 
who are now murdered. I only know the four Marines. Uh, I know a little bit about each of them. I don't know anything about the sailor yet. We'll report back next week. But Carson Holmquest, Skip Wells, David Wyatt, and Thomas Sullivan. David Wyatt was married with two kids. Carson just came home last year from a 244-day deployment. And there's a picture. I'm going to put it up on our Facebook right after this segment. A picture of him, excuse me, uh, of his wife and two-year-old holding a sign that says, we waited 244 days for this. Welcome home, Daddy. And we also know his last words. He was, uh, or I should say, Skip's last words. He was texting his girlfriend. And they were just texting back and forth, sweet little nothings. And then he wrote in capital letters, active shooter. And she said, you're so weird. And she kept texting. I kept texting. And she said, Han, I need you to answer me, please. If only he had something other than a phone on his hip. And Thomas Sullivan, gunnery sergeant, Thomas Sullivan. He survived the battle of Abu Ghraib. Yes, that Abu Ghraib. There was a battle in 2005. 100 armed insurgents attacked the camp with rockets and grenades. Battled for hours. The American munitions, get this, they were so low that service members were ordered to fix bayonets in preparation for hand-to-hand combat. Fix your bayonets. Like it's 1776. Two Americans were killed, 44 were wounded. Tom was one of those. That was his second tour in Iraq. He survived that battle and was killed in Chattanooga. His um, family lives in Springfield, Massachusetts. His brother actually owns a, a bar and restaurant there. Someone on Facebook from Springfield that said they were driving to work Friday morning and they saw all the flags at half staff, wondered what was going on. And he didn't realize that one of their local heroes had been killed in Chattanooga in a terrorist attack. Now, the family hasn't said anything to the media. They only wrote a letter and the letter asked for all the media trucks to be removed from the front of their house and to stop trying to contact the staff of his brother's bar. One reporter, though, was allowed inside the home and the reporter said that all night long, all night long, family and friends met in the living room and they just shared stories of Thomas. And they never, they just all, they all stayed together all night long. And the only thing that was annoying was that the phone kept ringing. The phone kept ringing nonstop off the hook. And, they're, and you're thinking, well, why don't you just disconnect it? And they thought about that, but they decided not to because they thought that maybe one of those calls was going to be from President Obama. But it was only reporters. Someone from down the street of the Sullivan's house. He didn't know the Sullivan family, but he came by with a little American flag and without saying a word, placed it into the ground next to their mailbox. And I suppose in a country that doesn't really know exactly what to do yet, I think that gesture seems about right for now. His brother's restaurant, 
on their Facebook page is a picture of it. It's got a Marine Corps flag flying. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that Marine Corps flag is flying all the time. But hanging underneath the awning is a giant American flag. It covers the entire front of the restaurant. Hopefully, on the family's time, we will learn more about these men who signed up knowing that they were in harm's way, but never expecting that to come while serving in Tennessee. And to go back to the last segment, it's time for us to realize that they are a target. And I think this is a reminder for all of us to know what that uniform means to the enemy. Like, why is it they're a target? And on the flip side, it's a good reminder on what their uniform should always mean to us. Carson Holmquist, Skip Wells, David Wyatt, Thomas Sullivan. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, I uh, suppose we can chat about this. We've got a couple extra minutes here. Uh, this hour's had a theme of uh, desensitization. I think we're all desensitized, right? Um, I think we're desensitized to the internet. Let me explain. And I don't want to sound like an old fogey here, <laughs> right? Uh, but twofold. First, we're desensitized that the internet uh, should be expected, and it's something that we're completely dependent on. But people post things online like it's nothing. We are desensitized to the fact that once it's online, it's there forever and can never be taken down. That's point one. Point two is we're desensitized to what that means, as in how dangerous that can be. Let me explain. Gawker. And I'm going to get to Gawker and what they are in a, in a second here. Uh, but big picture, Gawker is a website company. And they own a bunch of other different like news-ish sort of tabloidy websites. And they posted a story the other day of the chief of a chief financial officer at a major company. I'm not going to go into details because I don't want to be a party to what they did. And so the CFO is soliciting a night with a uh, gay escort. Now, keep in mind, this guy's married to a, a wife. So he's texting this escort guy back and forth. Messages, pictures, the whole thing. And they agree to a night for $2,500. The escort then finds out who he is and starts to extort him for more money. Threatens to post all of it online if he doesn't give him more money. The guy says, all right, I'm done. We're, it's off. The escort then goes to Gawker and Gawker publishes all of it. The pictures, the text, everything on their website. All while protecting the, protecting the identity of the escort. 
And when they did, even writers for Gawker, even people high up in Gawker said, whoa. (laughs) One guy said, I don't say this lightly. This is repugnant, shameful journalism. And journalism should be in quotes there. But that, that guy works for Gawker. So two things. First, the guy, the CFO, he's completely desensitized to the fact that everything on the Internet and even over text is permanent. Right, he's doing something that obviously would ruin his marriage, possibly his job, and he's putting it on the internet. Now he's putting it on, it's text message, but it's the same thing. He's making it possible to be extorted. And we're desensitized to that's what happens when you put stuff on the internet, when you put stuff out there. As soon as you press send, it's out there. Then you have the editors at Gawker who decided to run this trash and destroy a man's life. A man who's not in the public eye in any way. He's not a politician or anything like that. Gawker just wanted to take someone down for sport. So to, in order to do that, you have to have no moral compass. You Forget about like being uncalibrated a little bit. You're just totally off the rails. You are so desensitized that you think that's ever an appropriate thing to do. So in light of that story, twofold. I want to make a plea and then, and then a request. The plea, first, never, ever go to gawker.com or any of the sites that they own ever or buzzfeed but buzzfeed isn't evil it's just a giant waste of time but gawker is it's evil and i got a strong hint uh, of this a couple months ago when i found out that one of the websites they own is called jezebel and and the title is celebrity sex fashion for women and i thought hold on jezebel jezebel.com that's what you went with? Jezebel is the most evil and wicked woman in the entire Bible. You decided to name your website after Jezebel? What is, what is wrong with you? So that's who they are. And Jezebel died when she was thrown out of a window and dogs ate her body. Which is exactly the type of death that their gossip rags deserve. So please never ever partake in anything owned by Gawker.com. They are awful. And while I'm at it, no more BuzzFeed either. But again, BuzzFeed's not evil. They're just a giant time suck. And you're better than that. So don't go to any of those two websites. So that's just my plea. Here's my request, though. And this is, this is more talking to me. I, I, need, I need a purge from this garbage. And this is what I was sort of getting to in the last, a couple segments ago when I said, you know, a lot of people will say, when are people going to wake up? I guess that's kind of it. But it's not only wake up. I think when are people going to have a sensitivity again? A sensitivity to stimulus, a sensitivity to things around them, a sensitivity to other people. When is that going to come back? I think we're numb. It's not that we're asleep, we're numb. And I know that's a subtle difference. It could be semantics. But I, I think there's a difference there. And we need to purge our lives of garbage. Here's an example of how powerful this is. My wife and I, uh, we love salt. We eat a lot of salt. And we salt our vegetables a lot. And we didn't even notice until a friend came over for dinner and took a bite of broccoli and spit it back out on the plate. <laughs> like it was the most repulsive thing they've ever. They said, what is that? Like it was literally like comically. What is this? They couldn't even keep it in their mouth because it was so salty. We didn't even notice. So we're just, we're just shoving back this salty vegetable. Like, what are you talking about? What's wrong? 
person couldn't even put it in their mouth. So uh, we cut back on salt, and then we eliminated it for a while, and now we're back to using appropriate amounts of salt. What is your salt? Is there anything in your life that is desensitizing you? It was, it's amazing how we were so desensitized to the salt. And, and it's crazy. And now it took someone else to say, hey, whoa, we got to back off on that. Now, what's desensitizing you in your life? You may not even know what it is right now, but there's something that you can purge from your life that will make you a better person. Garbage in, garbage out. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know that there was so much garbage going in. It took someone else to say, what are you doing? And there's plenty of other things in my life that are desensitizing me. Please don't think I'm doing a whole segment on uh, the need to lower your salt intake. That's not what it's about. A lot of other things in my life that are desensitizing me. And I don't even know because I'm desensitized. So I just ask to keep an eye and an ear out for things. Um, And if there's something in your life that that you've realized is desensitizing you, it could be food, it could be TV, it could be uh, Facebook, it could be a toxic person in your life, whatever. If you could send me an email on what that thing is, I'd, I'd love to know. I'm just curious what people uh, choose. And if you let me know, maybe I'll join you if it's relevant uh, to me too. Slater Radio is the Twitter, S-L-A-T-E-R Radio. So what, what, are, what do you think is desensitizing you? What are you going to purge from your life? Just to get a little bit of, you, of you, who you really are back. Here's an example. My wife and I, we just moved from a little tiny apartment, bought a house, moved over. The be- I was going to say the best part of moving. The only good part about the physical act of moving is you throw away 30% of your stuff. It's un- I love it. It's the best part. It's the only good part. Moving is the worst. But it's, this is the good part about moving is you purge the things you don't need and the clothes you never wear. And it always feels refreshing. It always feels liberating, doesn't it? I remember we just did it the other day. We had um, so we had a bunch of clothes, a bunch of stuff. We got rid of it, Goodwill, all the rest. Um, but we had a ba- two bags, garbage bags full of clothes in the back of my car. And it, it was there for a couple weeks, and we just never got to the Goodwill to drop it off. Finally, just a couple days ago, we dropped it off. That was the purge. I realized I didn't even – just putting them in bags in the car wasn't quite even the purge. I had to get rid of them totally. Totally get them out of the car, put them in the bin. Now I'm done with them. And it felt awesome. What are you going to give up? And I was thinking about this the other day with the four and now five service members who were murdered in, uh, in Chattanooga. And our nation's reaction. I think we're too desensitized. We need a little morality cleanse, and we got to get sensitive to these things again. Otherwise, I don't know what it's going to take if we continue on this track. Slater Radio on Twitter. See you next week. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.